The Atlanta Journal-Constitution is taking Georgia political coverage to the next level. Now, Georgia's smartest political team is adding Hall of Fame political broadcaster Bill Nygut. I am beyond thrilled to be joining the remarkable political team at the AJC. And with the year that we have unfolding in politics, it's going to be an exciting ride. Read Bill Nygut's expert insight on AJC.com and listen to the Politically Georgia podcast with me, Greg Bluestein, And me, Patricia Murphy. And me, Tia Mitchell. Hear new episodes every weekday. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hello, I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And welcome to the Voices of King, a 13-part podcast from the AJC. Originally recorded in 2008 for a short documentary, we sat down with 13 people who were close to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in life and in death. This podcast was originally released in 2018 to mark the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's death. Now, as we move into a new era, we are revisiting these important interviews to give you a glimpse inside the making of history. We were proud to document these conversations then, and we are proud to present them to you today. He went on to defy those who sought to kill him. I'm not fearing any man. I ran to the car, what happened, what happened? And when I turn around, then I can see. All I was thinking about was, Lord, don't let him die. You know, don't let him die, don't let him die. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. I don't go back there. I've been there, but I haven't been there. There's nothing there that I want to remember, really. Why King? Why the Prince of Peace? That was going through my mind. This man, this one man, he taught us how to live, and he taught us how to die. This is The Voices of King, a podcast of 13 voices, 13 people who bore witness of the last days of the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., as told to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ryan Horn. Getting arrested at the age of six or seven was just something that could happen when you're the child of a civil rights icon. Ralph David Abernathy III, a former Georgia state senator and namesake son of a civil rights icon, describes in an interview with the AJC in 2008 how close his family was with the King family. Perhaps one of the more emotional interviews we conducted 10 years ago, Abernathy III shared the dynamics of the duo that made up his father and Dr. King. Reverend Abernathy was the strategist of the movement deciding what they're going to preach about, speak about, and how they were going to go about making change. And Uncle Martin, a name Abernathy III would call Dr. King, was the philosopher of the two. He talks about how in sync the two were, from the way they dressed, even to the Aramis cologne that they wore. Dr. King and Reverend Abernathy were one. Moreover, Abernathy III gives perspective of what it was like being the child of the movement. AJC reporter, Ernie Suggs. One of the things that we don't think about a lot, again, is the toll that these um, things have on kids. And, you know, Ralph David Abernathy, the King kids, they were kids when their family, you know, they, fam- these were young families. So, you know, for him to, you know, he talked about um, 
how when Martin Luther King was killed, when he found out that Martin Luther King was killed, you know, he had a natural inclination to fear that his father may have been killed, that his father was dead. So, you know, when you're six or seven years old, you kind of don't understand those things. You know, your dad went to Memphis to be a part of a protest and you get a call that, you know, someone was shot and killed and it's your Uncle Martin. You know, it's not his father, but his father was there. His father, you know, was two feet away from Martin Luther King when the bullet hit, you know, how close that was. And, you know, Ralph, he talks about how the fact that Ralph David Abernathy, you know, um, their relationship was so close that he refused to leave the operating room. He refused to leave his side, um, you know, throughout, you know, after King was shot. So, you know, it was a very, very emotional interview. Ralph has always been, um, for those of us who knew him and covered him, we always knew he um, he held his feelings on his sleeve, if that's the right um, you know, metaphor. Um, so, you know, it was a very emotional, it was one of our most emotional interviews that we did. And I think Ralph at the time of the interview, or 10 years ago, was at a, at an emotional state. He had gone through some stuff, some personal stuff. Um, he had dealt with some personal stuff that he was probably still dealing with. I think this was kind of one of those cathartic interviews that allowed him to tell some stories that he probably wanted to tell for a long time. Wow. What was your birthday, March what? March 19th. Okay, mine's March 18th. So yours is what? Wednesday, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So you yeah. just turned out. Uh... Oh, I didn't realize that. You're a Pisces. Yeah, Pisces, yeah. You're, you're an emotional man. <laughs> That's what they say. Yeah. You, you cry at movies. Yeah, sometimes yeah. I do. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I do sometimes. <laughs> Me too. I can't help it. Yeah, you know, a good My movie. father was March the 11th. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. okay. Mm -hmm. All right. What year was your father born? He was in 1926. Wow. And I guess I was arrested marching on a mule train in South Georgia with Hosea Williams. I had to be, I guess I had to be seven, six or seven. Oh, you were arrested? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, marching on a mule train. We came back from that march after the arrest we stayed overnight in jail uh -huh. and uh, it was myself and a whole host of people on you know the mule train oh sure yeah and uh we got home we came after the uh after prison i mean after the jails uh stay overnight it was so much fun <laughs> um there were so many people on the march uh -huh. that they had to put us in the warehouse where they housed the cars, oh, okay. the police vehicles. Yeah, yeah. They moved all the vehicles out and put uh -huh. us in. And yeah. At the end of the march, when we got back to Atlanta, we met back up at my father's church, and that's where we met my father and Martin Luther King Jr. Uh -huh. And they fed us, and uh -huh. my dad was, you know, are you all right? Are you all right? Uh -huh. You know, and it's like, I'm fine, Dad. You go to jail all the time. I mean, it's, not, <laughs> it's no big deal. <laughs> So go ahead with your, uh, who you are. Okay, I am Ralph David Abernathy III. I was nine years of age when Malcolm Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Okay. Um, so you talk about your uncle, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, talk to me about your, because the Abernathy name is so linked in the civil rights movement. Talk to me about the connection between the Abernathys and the Kings and how close that relationship was. Uh, it was intimately close. Uh, our fathers were best friends um, and partners in the civil rights movement. Uh, my father, and I want to make it clear, was not one of Martin Luther King's associates or one of his uh, lieutenants, but he was actually his partner. Um, the, those two ministers um, started a movement in Montgomery, Alabama that changed the course of history in America, and they did it together. 
Uh, every time that my Uncle Martin Luther King Jr. would preach or speak at a mass meeting, my father would preach or speak before him or after him. Daddy's main uh, contribution was the strategist, and he provided a speech about strategy, what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. And Uncle Martin was, would come in and give the philosophical reasons of why we should do it. And so that partnership uh, emanated itself into the two families being close. If you look on the pictures that you see of my father and Martin Luther King Jr., they dressed alike. Mm -hmm. They had the same shoes. They wore the same cologne. Mm -hmm. um, and so as a result, the King children and the Abernathy children grew up together. Where my mother and father and Martin Luther King Jr. and Uncle Retta Scott King would travel together. They would, uh, uh, we would go over to the King home and spend a night, or they would come over to the Abernathy home and spend a night. When they would go on trips around the world together, uh, we at, at one at a month at a time, uh, we would um, uh, go over to their home, and they would come over to ours, and we would stay there for the entire time that my parents were out of town with Uncle Retta and Uncle Martin. Uh, we went to the same elementary schools together. We integrated Spring Street Elementary School, which is now the school for puppetry arts. Tom Houck, who uh, is now trying to write a book entitled uh, Driving uh, Dr. King, uh, he would pick up the Abernathy children and take us to school along with the King children. So we had the same chauffeur, the same drivers. Um, we went to the same elementary schools. Dexter and I uh, played football together. We, um, uh, well, I was the running back and he was my blocker. Uh, Spring Street School was undefeated for the entire six years that we played. We were the only two black players in the whole league. And we played out at Chastain Park every Saturday morning. And um, Dexter blocked and I ran and we stayed undefeated for the entire time until we graduated from Spring Street Elementary School. Uh, my sister, Wandalyn and Yolanda, remained friends until the day that she died. Um, she had just visited my sister about eight months or six months before she died. Uh, she went to Europe and stayed with her for a month. Um, Donzele and Yolanda were very close, and Yolanda lived in Los Angeles, and my sister Donzele lives in Los Angeles, and they were both actresses, and they stayed in contact and together and communicated constantly every week and sometimes two and three times a week. Dexter and I were roommates in college. Uh, we had our condominium outside of our campus on Beecher, and myself and Dexter, along with Isaac Ferris Jr., uh, stayed off campus in our condominium, and we stayed there for four years until we finished school together. Um, we uh, are very close, and Martin and I are as close. Martin is the one who asked me to run for the presidency of SCLC after he resigned from the position. Uh, I see him every, you know, every time that I see him out in the community, or we talk on the telephone uh, from time to time. The, the, the families have remained, the children particularly, have remained close over the years because we grew up together. And we consider each other cousins. Uh, just, we're just friends. What about, uh, I remember the April 3rd speech that Martin Luther King gave in which he, I've been to the mountaintop, and your father introduced him. He said, this is the best friend I have, Ralph David Abernathy. What do you think about when you think about him saying that? And when you listen to that speech. Well, I, um, I know it was a, a very intense time, and I, I think about the tension 
that uh, was going on in the community of Memphis and the death threats that he and my father lived under. I think about the spiritually led mission that these two men were on and how they were such in sync with each other that when my father walked into that church, Mason Temple, and the crowd gave him a sigh and he felt that Martin needed to be there. And he went back to the office and he dialed up and said, Martin, you need to come. And Uncle Martin came with no hesitation. Even though he had asked my father to go speak for him, it was a hurricane that night, a very bad storm. And but yet he felt the spirit to say move. And he called Uncle Martin and he responded with no hesitation as if, you know, now I sent you to go speak for me, Ralph, but now Ralph is calling and I'm coming. You know, as if that was a spiritually led, uh, spiritually driven situation. These men were men of God that operated in the spirit and operated on faith, which is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. And so they operated in that evidence of things unseen. Uh, for him to have called Martin that night, if he had made that call, that speech would have never been given. And we would never have that beautiful mountaintop uh, uh, message that uh, we endear in this country and in this world. Um, so it was a spiritually led partnership. And uh, I can only imagine that Uncle Martin was tired. I can only imagine that he, out of all of the trials and tribulations, all of the victories, all of the struggles, all of the pitfalls, all of the valleys that he and my father went through on that night when my father introduced him and he got up to the podium and he said, I was trying to figure out who Ralph David Abernathy was talking about. Uh, I, he, he's the best friend that I have in the world. I know that he probably at that moment when my father was introducing him, he reflected on all of the, the different trials and tribulations and valleys that they've been through together and uh, how close that they had uh, been over the years. Uh, the man that he could lean on, the man that could lean on him, the man that was his partner, his friend, his confidant, uh, it's something special when you have somebody that you can depend on outside of your wife and outside of your, your family. When you have somebody that is a brother to you that's not your blood, that's down in the valley with you, someone who sees things the same way as you do, your partner and your friend in, 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 in whatever business that you're doing. And so I'm sure he reflected back on all of that as my father introduced him. And then he got up and he gave that speech. And I think that in that speech, he probably even knew or had probably come to a point in his life where he said it didn't matter with him now. So he had probably come to that triumph point where he could just say to himself, I've done the best that I can do. And when I do all that I can, God will do all that I can. So I'm releasing it and I'm giving it to you, Lord. And, I, and that's what I feel when I hear that speech. What do, do you What do you remember about April Fourth, during that day, prior to when your family heard that Dr. King had been shot, and talk to us about 
that that moment when you when you got the call? Well, we um, we were it was just a regular day for us. Um, we were in school and uh, just uh, and we're at the house and and uh, when we heard it was just a normal day for us as children playing in the in the yard and in the school and then when we heard that Uncle Martin was shot at that very moment our my mind and I'm sure my sister's mind went to my father um, because they were so close it's it was it was as if we were I was worried about whether daddy got shot too uh, I was concerned because I know they were so close that if the bullet, if my father had been anywhere close to Uncle Martin, which he was, the bullet would have hit him as well. So I was first concerned about my father's safety. Uh, later, as I became an adult and I heard the story, it, uh, it even came more real to me how close it was to my father being assassinated. You know, that room in the Lorraine Motel is a room that my father and Martin shared together. It has double beds in that room. The other bed is Ralph David Abernathy's bed. And that plate of fish that they have at the Lorraine Motel in the, in the museum is the plate of fish that my father and Martin ate from together, that last meal. My father had stepped out, he had just finished shaving and had stepped out on the balcony and was out there actually waiting for Malcolm Martin. So that meant that the assassin had my father in his sights in that, on that rifle. And my father was out there waiting on Malcolm Martin. Malcolm Martin came out on the balcony and daddy smelled Malcolm Martin's Aramis cologne. And he said, Martin, I forgot to put my cologne on because Daddy and Uncle Martin wore the same cologne. It was Aramis. So he, Martin, Uncle Martin said, well, Ralph, I'll be out here on the balcony waiting for you. And so my father went back in their room to the bathroom. And as he was putting the cologne in his hand, he heard the fire shots. So Martin Luther King was shot waiting on my father on the balcony. That's how close that situation was for those two men. When we come back, Abernathy III talks about his father's indignation towards officials while Dr. King was in surgery. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. I'm Ernie Suggs. And I'm Ned Ravone. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Welcome back to the Voices of King. 
In one of his last full interviews with the AJC before his 2016 death, Ralph David Abernathy III remembers very clearly the effects of Dr. King's death on his father, Reverend Ralph David Abernathy. So Martin Luther King was shot waiting on my father on the balcony. That's how close that situation was for those two men. And if my daddy had just decided to not go out, go back in that room to get his Aramis cologne, very well they could have both been shot at the same time. Um, the fact that he died in my father's arms and he didn't die on the balcony as most people think, uh, but Martin Luther King lived and he went, Bernard Lee and my father went, were the only two people who were allowed to travel in the ambulance to the hospital. It was in the hospital that my father said that he committed civil disobedience when he refused to leave the operating room. He wanted to make sure that nothing uh, inappropriate would be doing, that they would be doing to uh, Martin Luther King Jr. He wanted to make sure that he was there as a witness uh, to make sure that the doctors did the right thing. It was a very turbulent time in America for race relations. And so he wanted to make sure that they knew that there was somebody there in that, in that operating room that was overlooking them that cared. And uh, the doctors came over to my father and uh, they said, uh, what we're about to do to him is what we do to presidents and important people. And then he realized who he was talking to. And he said, I'm sorry, uh, Dr. Abernathy. I mean, this is what we do for people that uh, are of a certain importance. Uh, but uh, he said they put some machine down on him. And then they came back over to him and said, there's nothing else that we can do for him. And my father went over to that operating room, uh, operating table and uh, picked him up, uh, lifted him up in his arms. And uh, he took his last breath in my father's arms in that hospital. I never heard that before. Yeah. And did you see your father that day or was it the next day? No. And how did this, how did this impact him immediately? Well, uh, no, I did not see him that day. I uh, didn't see him for a while. Uh, he remained in Memphis. Uh, he was the one who, you know, how they have the next of kin to identify the body. Well, Mrs. King uh, and my mother were supposed to come. Uh, President Johnson had provided uh, Air Force One or Air Force Two for them to fly to Memphis. And my mother and Mrs. King, and she can tell you better than I can, they were on their way to uh, the airport and they were en route at the airport going down the concourse uh, when they got the call, when Mrs. King got the call that uh, Uncle Martin uh, died. At that time, she felt she needed to go back home and be with her children. And so she and my mother came back to the house, which left my father in Memphis. So he was the one who identified the body as the next of kin. And uh, he stayed there and uh, in Memphis. And uh, then later he came home. How did how did this the shooting of his best friend, having witnessed it and uh, having Dr. King die in his arms? How did that 
impact him? I know he had to take up the mantle of the, of the movement, but how did it impact him personally? How did it impact the family? We were, uh, I'll tell you that my father was in a state of depression for years, not months and not days, uh, but for years over the passing of uh, and the assassination of Uncle Martin. Uh, it had a tremendous impact on him, not just in their, in his responsibility and obligation to pick up the mantle and have the courage to walk alone, but also in just the fact that his best friend was gone. My father mourned the passing, the assassination of Martin Luther King for years to come. And it was many, 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 many years after he was assassinated that he finally started coming back around to himself. Between you and I, I don't think he ever was back to his original, to his regular self ever again. But time has a way of healing things. And so time over time, it healed uh, that wound, but that mark was still there. And he was never really fully back to himself as, as the man that he was prior to that assassination. It changed his life uh, forever. How did it change your life? Well, it, it let me know, you know, we all felt, because if you were close to the movement, as we were as children, uh, we were right in the heart of it. You can't have, we had a sense that something might happen. I mean, it was, it's hard not to have been that close to the heartbeat of the movement and not understood that maybe something would happen. Our home had been bombed. Our church, my father's church had been dynamited. Um, we lived under constant death threats as a family. When I was a little boy, I um, had to sleep in the room by myself because my sisters, they were together in their room. And so they had to keep the light on in the hall and keep the door open because I was afraid to sleep alone because I was afraid they were going to bomb the house again and throw the bomb in my room thinking they were hitting my mother and father's room, but really hitting me. So that, imp that, that fear I w grew up with, uh, it, was, uh, it had a, a significant impression on me as a child and on my sisters. Uh, and so it, to, to that fear of, of, of the unknown uh, was a very significant uh, 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 impact on me as a child. And as we, we knew something, we kind of just sensed that something was going to happen. We didn't know what, uh, but we knew that uh, Viola LaRusso had been killed. We knew Jimmy Lee Jackson had been killed. We knew when we were, we, you know, the Abernathy's are from Alabama. And my father's from Linden and my mother's from Uniontown. I was born in Montgomery. When we would go home uh, on road trips to visit my family, my uncles and my aunts, we couldn't stop on the road in any diner. And I remember one, day, one time we were on our way back to Atlanta and uh, a car followed us on the road for until we got out of the Alabama, passed out of the Alabama state line. So we knew something was going to happen. We, you just sensed it if you were that close. You just sensed it. And um, when it happened, you know, it had a significant impact on, on me as a child because I was so afraid 
from that point forward, well, all of my fears that I had in my, in my childhood became a reality. The fear of keeping that light on in the hall and keeping the door open became a reality. Uh, the fear of of, uh, uh, of of our home being bombed again became a reality. All of those fears that I had internally uh, all came became a reality when Uncle Martin was uh, was assassinated. And um, as I watched my father and I saw him uh, in his and, and uh, he's, he had a lot of strength, he carried himself, but I knew that he was not the same. There are, there are several um, famous photographs of you um, at the funeral. Um, I think there's one of you walking along the, the, with, the, um, with the casket. I think I remember a film clip of you actually peering into the casket. Yes. What do you remember about that day, the funeral, Dr. King's funeral, which your dad Delivered the eulogy. Is that yeah. Right? Well, he uh, was he um, presided presided over the funeral, and uh, uh, I think Dr. Benjamin Mays may have delivered the eulogy, and my father um, um, uh, did the benediction and entombed him, and said had the last rites, you know, said the last rites over his over his uh, um, remains as he was entombed. Um, it was a very sad, very uh, so sober, uh, somber day. Um, very quiet. I remember a lot of tears. But I had a this weird feeling. My father used to always call Martin Luther King Jr. the 20th century prophet. And I had this strange feeling that a prophet really had died. It was, it was something like I had never experienced before in my life and something I never experienced again. I had that same feeling once my father died in the hospital. It's as if there was I can't explain that that emotion. But it was a an emptiness, but yet it was also a serene type of aura that surrounded that uh, funeral and the people, I saw all of the people crying and uh, everybody was mourning. And as a child, nine years of age, we, Dexter and I and Marty and Yolanda and Yoki and Wanderlin and Donzele, we were just I think we were just in awe of the of the emptiness, the presence of emptiness uh, that surrounded us. Uh, there was nothing. There was nothing anybody could say. There were no words that could be spoken that um, that gave us any comfort. Um, I, I, I watched my father closely at that time because I was concerned that.
somebody was going to try to kill him. He showed so much strength, he gave me strength. But he also, um, you know, I also saw him step in and become, um, he carried Marty and Dexter with us still as we traveled. And uh, as a little kid, you know, he told me, he said, you know, they don't have a father anymore. And um, it was just, uh, it was a very, a very trying time, a time for understanding. And uh, he showed me strength uh, as, he, as he carried on. But it was, um, that funeral was, there was some type of spirit in the air or some presence in the air that I can't explain, but it was it was like an emptiness that I can't express with words. Does it seem like it's been 40 years? And what does, and does that number mean anything to you? The fact that it's been 40 years since he was killed? Well, it doesn't seem like it's, that, it's been that long. Um, And I, I would think that the number 40, you know, the resurrection, Jesus stayed in the wilderness for 40 days and for 40 nights. And the number 40 is a biblical number. And it was when he came out of the wilderness, uh, his Gethsemane, that he was uh, renewed in his spirit. And I think that it's very, it's something to be said about as we now, as a nation, embark upon this new era of Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton on the 40th anniversary of the passing of Martin Luther King Jr. and his prophetic words um, that he gave on his speech at Mason Temple are now becoming a reality. Coming out of that wilderness as a nation. Um, and now we are seeing this, this, um, this move, this reality, this essence of, of something that we as a people never really, in, never could envision would have actually happened in our lifetime that an African-American man would have a real opportunity and a chance to be the Democratic nominee and the President of the United States of America. I think there's something to be said about that 40 as you correlate that with Jesus and the renewing of his spirit and the renewing of this nation and the timing as the 40th anniversary of the assassination and us as a country going through the wilderness for 40 years and now renewing our spirit and seeing this Barack Obama uh, 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 phenomena uh, take place in this country where white and black, Jew and Gentile, Catholic and Protestant, all young and old, all come together and vote for an African-American 40 years 
after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. as that same 40 days and 40 nights and Jesus came out of that wilderness and now this nation is coming out of its wilderness into that renewed spirit. That's how I envision or how I look at 40 when I uh, apply it to the 40th anniversary of the assassination and the passing of Malcolm Martin. I think that there's everything is in divine order and that it is a spiritual, contextual understanding to that number 40 and to the connection of this nation. All right. Um, I think that might be... Um, I just wanted, if you wanted to give any closing, closing thoughts or um, ending statement about just how you think about um, this anniversary, or I shouldn't say anniversary, but this commemorative date or just anything that's going on, and just your final thoughts? Well, um, my final thoughts are that um, we have uh, come a long way as a nation. And I think that um, Martin Luther King Jr. would be very pleased with how far we've come. I think that we have a long way still yet to go. And I think his message would be, as we come out of that renewed, and I guess the word anniversary of the passing of his, uh, or the anniversary of his assassination is not the appropriate word, say the commemorative um, uh, uh, marking of, his, of the passing. Um, as we renew our spirit as a nation with what's happening in our country, um, we must always remember as a nation that we've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. And I believe he would be saying to us to call upon us to dig deep into our inner selves and to be even better than what we are right now and to be the best that we can be as a nation and to try and accomplish that beloved community that he gave his life for us to, to have an opportunity to become. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming. That was great. Um, I think we got it. In the next episode of The Voices of King, we will hear from Representative John Lewis, who found out about Dr. King's death while on the campaign trail with presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy. A special thanks to AJC reporters Rosalind Bentley and Ernie Suggs. Also to senior editor of visuals Sandra Brown, senior managing editor Mark Wallagore, and our editor-in-chief, Kevin Raleigh. Be sure to visit www.ajc.com backslash MLK50 for the AJC's coverage of honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'm Ryan Horn, and you've been listening to The Voices of King. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements. 
are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.